My name is Jeff, and I'm one of the pastors here at Heart of Life. And uh, I, I really am glad that you're here today, really glad uh, to have the chance to share with you today. The text that we are studying is incredibly personal for me. I told you last week that if I had to choose a section of scripture, like one section of scripture from which God has probably done the most work in my heart and in my life, it, it would be the passage that we were studying last week. Well, the passage that we're studying last week is connected to what we're studying this week. And I'm going to just start today by sharing a little bit of my story. And my hope and my prayer is that perhaps God will use a little bit of my story to encourage some of you who may be in a familiar story. When our youngest daughter, Kayla, was born, she battled numerous physical struggles. Lots of doctors. We spent several years doing even genetic testing, looking for some answers that we could not find. In with that, there were moments that she was very sick. To this day, I can picture in great detail leaning against a bed in a dark hospital room at Children's Mercy, staring at Kayla as a little baby who is just lying lifeless for days in this tent that they constructed in order to try to keep everything out that needed to be out. And all that they would allow us to do is to just reach our hand underneath the tent and we could touch the bottom of her foot. As a young parent, I had no idea what love could weigh. Had, I had no idea how heavy love can feel sometimes. And I'm telling you, the fear of loss, like I thought we would lose her. The fear of loss in that season of my life was higher than I had ever experienced before. All of that gut-wrenching stuff with Kayla was happening in the middle of me pursuing a doctorate degree. I felt like that's what God wanted me to do. I was trying to keep going, just trying to keep up. Sometimes I would have to like take some of the doctoral seminars multiple times because in the middle of them we would, we would end up with a hospital run or dealing with something. And honestly, growing up, I did okay in school. But it was never because I was the smartest person in the room. And I am not attempting to put humility on display. I'm telling you, I am rarely ever the smartest person in the room, but I am often the most determined. On the wall in my office uh, hangs a picture. It's a big picture of a bulldog. And a quote by Winston Churchill, the British bulldog, it, it reads like this, the nose of the bulldog has been slanted backwards so that he can breathe without letting go. It's a primary strategy in my life. 
But this was a level of work that I was beginning to wonder if any amount of determination could overcome. I, I promise you, I felt in way over my head. And my determination level was being absorbed by other battles, obviously, that were much bigger than trying to get a degree. The problem is my whole congregation was kind of in on me getting the degree. I, I mean, this, this is one of those where people are applauding their, their young pastor and thanking me for doing that and cheering me on and telling me how proud they were of me. You know, you know what I'm saying? It, it's one of those moments where the fear, though, of failure in this season of my life was higher than I had really ever experienced before. Add to that, at the time, I'm 29 years old, pastor in a church, which means there's all the stuff that comes from being a pastor and still being younger than pretty much everybody that I'm responsible for leading. We were a Baptist church that just happened to be located across the street from one of the largest independent Baptist churches in the state of Missouri, and we were less than three miles from one of the largest and fastest growing Southern Baptist churches in the state of Missouri. And the expectation for me is that I am a good leader who will lead our church to grow. And I'm just being honest with you and telling you that the fear of inadequacy at that season in my life was higher than I had ever experienced. I played church league basketball, you know, to burn some of the stress, right? That's the phrase we use. And over my lifetime, God has taught me a lot about life in the gym but what I learned there was one of the most humbling and most powerful lessons that God ever taught me. You ready for this? <laughs> I'm sitting on the bench watching the game because I'm not allowed to go back into the game for another quarter. You know why? Because I just got teed up. As in technical foul. Yeah, you heard that right. And wouldn't it be beautiful if church league basketball had a box score so that everybody could read the statistics and it would read, technical foul, one, the pastor. <laughs> hey, the referee was terrible. <laughs> I'm just kidding. It wasn't him at all. It was me. And it may sound silly to you, but I'm telling you, it was one of those moments that as humbling as it was, I am grateful that God brought me there because it was the point that I realized what was building inside of me. And what was building was fear. I really didn't know if my little girl would live. And what was building in me was doubt and frustration and anger. And the truth is, I knew that I needed power in my life. I needed power to fix what needed to be fixed in my daughter. I needed power to achieve 
some dreams that, that, that me and others by now have begun to, to, to latch onto. I, I need some power to succeed at, at growing God's church. But my fear of inadequacy has never been so dominant, and my fear of failure has never been so intense, and my fear of loss has never been so extreme. And that is when, by divine guidance, God walked me straight into Ephesians chapter three. And he gave me eyes to see, like really see, more. Here's what I read now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. Well, that's what I needed, more. More has to happen here. But check this out, according to his power, that's what I need. That is what I need in my life. It's like, God, I, I, I need more and I need power. I, I need some things fixed. I, I need to know how, how, to, how to work through this. And so, in case today is the first day that you're gathering with us, this is the anchor for the current series that we're working our way through. It's, a, it's more. And you'll notice that slam in the middle, there is this power button, right? The, the O is a, it's a power button. Uh, the, the picture is the, a more, but, but, it, but it, where does this power come from? I'm telling you, in this season of my life, God forever changed me understanding what more really is, and he forever changed what power really is, and he forever changed me understanding where that comes from. This is not, I'm, I'm admitting to you today that this is not just the title of this current talk series. It really is the title slide for my faith. God walked me through Paul's prayer in Ephesians chapter three. And Paul mentions power over and over again. But every time Paul mentions power, it was not a request for power to do something. Every time Paul mentioned power, I, it was a request for power to know something. Power by the Spirit to know Jesus, him being at home in my life. Power by the Spirit to know his love, how wide and long and high and deep. And I'm telling you, for the, for the really, the, the first time in my life, I, I really, really saw it. The power of God that goes beyond what I think and the love of God that goes beyond what I think. And in that season, it was as though God were asking me this question over and over and over again. This is the question. Is it possible for me to love you more than I do right now? Is it possible for me God, to love you, Jeff, more than I do right now. And what God, what God allowed me to do is to wrestle with the answer that was a resounding no. <laughs> no. It is not possible that God could love me, Jeff, any more than he was at right that moment. And the reason is because God's love is perfect. You understand that? God's love is to the fullest. 
You understand that? God's love is not based on Jeff and his performance. God's love is based on God and his character. It is who he is. So let me tell you how that translates. That translates into, okay, so do I, Jeff, believe that if I had nothing else to offer to God, never got to preach another sermon, never got to lead another mission, never got to help another person, do I believe that God still loves me to the fullest? You say, well, sure you should believe that, but here's the wrestling match. See, I knew that if I stopped preaching sermons, most of the people who feed my need for value would disappear. They attach to me because I give them something. And when I stopped giving them something, they would attach to someone else. That's the way it works. And deep down, I was acting as though I sort of believed that God was the same way. I said I knew God loved me. But I was acting like I needed to prove that I was worth loving. That I needed to prove that I could get this done. I needed to succeed in order to feel worth. But what if, I mean like what if God already sees me as valuable to him? What if a cross proves that already? What if God already loves me to the fullest? What if a cross proves that already? What if what God wants most is not for me to do something more for him as though he needed me to do anything for him, but but what if God wants most for me to know him more and to know that he is more. In other words, if I failed, like growing a church, like everybody else would measure growing a church, would I still know that Jesus is more? If, if I failed at achieving what everybody else expected, would I still know that Jesus is more? And if my daughter didn't live, would I still know, I mean like really know that Jesus is more. See, this was not about if God heals my daughter. This was not about if God gives me success. This was not about if I surrender and believe then God will come through by giving me what I think I need. No, this was the moment in my life about surrendering to the truth that God loves me and regardless of what happens, that truth would not change. It was the season of my life when I really began to resign. To resign, control. And if I fail, I am loved. And if I am inadequate, I am loved. If I experience loss, I am loved. Because his love is perfect. 
and he already loves me to the fullest. <laughs> That's why it's kind of personal to me. And come on, wow. If that's really true for me and for you, if, if we really are loved that way, then come on, ready to roll? It's like, that's, that's how you feel, right? It's like, yeah, if, if I really am loved that way, then I'm ready to roll. I, I'm ready to go. I, I'm ready to serve. I'm, I'm ready to work. Come on, God, let's, let's do something big. And I, I think that's often what we do. Even when Ephesians chapter 3 really clicks with us, we turn the page to Ephesians chapter 4, and the most popular verses in Ephesians chapter 4 about how God has called some leaders to equip all the body, right? There are apostles and prophets and evangelists and shepherds and teachers, and, and so we talk about how God calls leaders to then equip the body, and we start training classes, and we start plugging people into ministry, and we start making big lists of what we can dream about for God to do. And all that's not wrong. It's just we actually skip what comes before that. And today, I want you to hear what comes before that. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. Paul says, as a prisoner for the Lord. Paul just means, look, I'm not in control, you're in control. This thing has happened with me. God, it's, it's all you. I don't want to be the one running the show. God, this is you. As a prisoner for the Lord then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. And I think we read that and we go, yes, that's what I'm saying, Paul. That is exactly what I'm talking about. I am loved. I, I, I am truly loved. God's power at work in me. I am ready to do whatever God wants me to do. Let's do something big. Paul goes, okay then. Here's where we start. Verse two. Be completely, what? Humble. No, 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 you didn't understand what I was saying, God. I, I was saying, let's do something big. <laughs> I, I am loved, then let's get after this thing. What, what, what can we do for you, God? I, where can we go, what can we achieve? And, and, and my question is, do we really get this? Do we really get this, that the Christian life, the life here that Paul calls the worthy life, is not first a matter of what you do, even for God. <laughs> it is a matter of who you are. And I just find it interesting that Paul doesn't start with a work, he doesn't start with an action, he doesn't start with deeds, all that stuff will come later. But he starts with attitude, he starts with heart, he starts with what's on the inside. See, there's a whole lot of people who call themselves Christians who believe that the Christian life is about going to church, reading the Bible, giving an offering, not swearing, not, not getting drunk, not, not committing a crime, right? We, we got our list. But the problem is we, we see that external definition of, of prescription behavior as the fact of Christianity. And we're seeing that backwards. This life is not what we do apart from who we are. But what we are that results in what we do. That's what God is after. 
you can put on the show and then not be real. And so he starts with humble. He starts with humility. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's seeing yourself like God sees you, and then you start to treat other people that way. It's knowing the answer to the question. Can God love me more than he does right now? Is it possible for God to love me more than right now? And when you come to that resounding answer, no, because it's not based on my performance. God loves me to the fullest. His love is perfect. Then it is choosing, humility is choosing to love others that way. It's the opposite of pride, which your enemy is constantly trying to get you to buy into. Some of us will run over people for the sake of not looking like we fail. Some of us will run over people for the sake of not being anything but first. Philippians says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, rather in humility. Value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but to the interest of others. James says, when you, when you are humble, God is the one who will lift you up. Jeremiah says, don't take pride in your intellect. Don't take pride in your power. Don't take pride in your riches. But you boast that you know God. Come on, you and I are only a part of more because of his power that is at work in us. And so Paul starts with humility. But humility leads to something else. Be completely humble and gentle is the word. Um, some of you will recognize it is the word meekness, right? The word meekness, which is power under control. It is a quiet, willing submission to God and to others without having to re react, without having to retaliate, without having to take revenge. In other places in Greek writing, this word gentle or meekness, in other places it's attached to something like a soothing medicine, like a tranquilizer. In other places it's attached to something that calms, like a cool breeze on a hot day. It's this calming effect, power under control. But hear me, meekness does not mean cowardness. Meekness does not mean indifference. It doesn't mean running from a fight. A meek person is ready for a fight. The, the point though is to know what's worth fighting for. I'm not fighting getting angry over how someone has offended me. I, I, I want to fight for what offends God. Meekness gets angry, but it's under control. Meekness is not the destruction of the lion. It's just the taming of the lion. Paul says be completely humble, and humility is gonna to lead to gentleness. Be gentle, and that's gonna to lead to, oh man, the P word, right? Patient, patient. Well, the word here is, is actually a, a word of long-tempered. It's, it's probably what you think. It involves an attitude that never gives in to negative circumstances. That's a patience. Like Abraham, 
whom God promised descendants more than could ever be counted. And 25 years later, Abraham does not have one single son. Did you hear what I said? God promised, and 25 years later, he does not yet have one son. And he goes through difficult times in there, and the word meekness, the word, uh, I'm sorry, the word patience is used. Noah, God tells him what to do, and it's 120 years. It's 120 years, and it has never rained on the earth. Did we mention that? It has never, ever, ever rained. But there is this stay with it attitude with him. Jeremiah, whom God tells to preach to a group of people, he does it for 20 years and nobody responds. This is the word that changes why we do what we do. I'm not doing this worrying about how I look, will I fail, will I look foolish. I'm trusting God's sovereignty in this and it doesn't even mean that I have to understand. This word patience is also an attitude that, that, that can take what people dish out. In other words, when people criticize you, this is a word, how you respond. Here's what I've discovered. Okay, people are gonna always criticize you. They will. When they're right, I need to change. You ever notice that? It's like when they criticize and they're correct, maybe they didn't do it the right way, but okay, it means I need to change something. But when they're wrong, like they criticize me and they're wrong, okay, because I was wrong once. Yeah, it's like okay. People criticize you, what difference does it make? Because you are loved by God. And he's like, you just keep on forgiving and you keep on loving others. So here's my question. Let's just pause for a second and ask the question, am I describing you? Or, or is it when someone does something that you feel is against you, how do you respond? How do you respond? For some of us, our first reaction is to fire the missiles, right? Somebody does something that you feel is against you and you fire the missiles. This, this gets lived out in some practical ways in church life. I mean, I, I can remember times, uh, there was one time I was getting my car worked on um, someplace and I'm having, I'm having a conversation with, with some of the guys there and somehow somebody else's name came up from, from the, the church um, that I was pastoring and, and uh, I, I said, do you, do you know him? And they're like, oh, oh yeah, we know him. Everybody knows him when he comes in here. And it ain't because he brings donuts. He's a terror. And I'm, I'm, I'm saying that's the stuff within that we're talking about here. Even, even if the shop is wrong, Jesus' followers have a power available to respond differently than the rest of the world responds. Be completely humble. That humility is going to lead to a gentleness, a meekness. That meekness is going to lead to a patience, and that patience leads to bearing with one another in, check out the word, it's love. It's love. It is a forbearing love. Maybe you would tell me, my enemies give me a lot of trouble, but I can take it, Jeff. 
I'm gritting my teeth and I can take it. Well, I need to tell you, that's not actually the point. The point is not just can you take it. The point is can you love them in return? That's the point. This is the love that seeks another's good at at, at any price. And you say, that's not natural. And I'm saying, that's the point. It is not natural. It is supernatural. I I, I read a passage like this, and and I, I think about the word evangelism for us. Right, and we think about evangelism, and when we think evangelism, we, we usually immediately go to methods, we immediately go to training. But come on, if people actually love this way, I mean, if the people of God actually demonstrate a humility, a gentleness, a patience, and a love, the world's not gonna know what to do with you. And I am not saying that you don't have to speak the gospel because we are called to speak the gospel. I'm just saying it might take a lot less words to do so if this is what's going on inside of us. A humility that leads to meekness, that leads to patience, that leads to love, and all of that is pointing toward what? Well, verse three gets us to the big point of what? Make every effort to keep the unity The unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. And all of a sudden, Paul's like, he's he's pulling back the curtains and he goes, "This this is where we're going. This is where we're going. The humility, the meekness, the patience, the love. This is about unity. This is the finale. This is the goal. And when he says make every effort, it it is language that means hurry up and get this done. There is an urgency to it. There is a priority to it. And I want you to notice these two little words, to keep. Make every effort to keep the unity. I would submit to you that we do not create unity. Sometimes you hear in church language, okay, how can can we bring unity to the church? How How can we create unity among God's people? I don't think you and I create unity. I think it is the Spirit of God who brings unity. He brings unity to us when we put our faith in Jesus, he moves into our lives, we're gonna become the body of Christ, he brings the unity. What's in our hands is are we gonna keep the unity or are we gonna destroy the unity? We don't create it. He already brings it. But if my heart is right in order to love other people, and then if their heart becomes right in order to love other people, then together we become this picture. He ends it with this this picture of a bond of peace. The word bond means belt. It's like this belt of peace that just wraps us up together. But as long as self is at the center, As long as my feelings or my prestige or my rights are at the, as long as those are the chief concern, then I will not know unity. But when you humble yourself, you'll know unity. And really Paul's gonna say, come on, this is really the only way to go. Because this is God's design. It is a design for oneness. Check out verse four. There is one body, one body, 
What's he talking about here? The body of Christ. There's not a Baptist body and a Methodist body and a Presbyterian body. There's not a Missouri body and a Kansas body, right? No, there's one church. There is is one body. In chapter three, we learned there is one family. Can I tell you a secret? Even the weird family members get in. That's a nice way of saying, there are some people that I think have some beliefs that are weird when I put it up next to the Bible, okay? I think they're weird. But if they know Jesus, they're in the body. Because I'm sure I don't have any weird ones. You know what I'm saying? (laughs) If they know Jesus, they're in the body. Because there's one body. There's one body and there's one spirit. That, that is the spirit of God. In, in, in Ephesians, Paul says he's like the engagement ring that guarantees our relationship goes on forever and ever with God. There's, there's one body, there's one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. I don't have time to unpack all this today. I'm just telling you that the word hope here is really, I think, pointing toward our final destination. There is, there is one destiny for us all. All who know Jesus. Because there is one Lord. Just one. One Christ, one King, one Savior. There is one faith. I think what he's referring to here is the Christian faith. There are not many, many versions of this. There is, there is one Christian faith that is revealed in the word of God. And there is one baptism in the name of Jesus. And then he ends with one God and father of us all who is over all and through all and in all. In case you weren't counting, there are seven ones. Paul's playing a little biblical Imagery, the, word, the number seven often is a, is a perfection number. And all of that points to the fact that God's primary direction for his church is that we be one. One, Jesus told his disciples on the night that he would be betrayed, on the night he's about to go to the cross. And he tells them in John chapter 13 that he wants them to love one another, that the world will know that they are his. In other words, he's saying to them, if you love each other this way, the world's gonna recognize that this is, a, this is something of supernatural origin. In John chapter 17, Jesus prays for you and me. Did you know that? You should go back and read it. Je- Jesus prays for you and me because when he's done praying for those disciples who are sitting right there in front of him, he then prays very specifically for all of those who will believe as a result of what those disciples would share. Well, guess who that is? That's me and that's you. And you know what the first thing he asks for us? He says, Father, I pray that they may be one. One. It's not some weird Greek word, it's one. I pray that they may be one so that the world knows that you sent me. 
In other words, Jesus is saying the unity of the church is going to reveal the supernatural character of the one who is the head of the church. <laughs> if the church is like every other human institution, then they're gonna know it's human. Because human institutions are fragmented. And they always have been. From the moment of the fall, we have been divided. But if in the middle of all the disunity in the world going on around us, and in the middle of all the lack of peace going on around us, and in the middle of all the lack of love, there is a community of people who are totally in love with each other and who are totally one, somebody from the outside is gonna look in and say, that's not human. That's not humanly possible. There must be a supernatural source at the heart of who this is. And Jesus says, they will know. They will know that there is something supernatural. They will see who he is through his body. We tear off into, you know, 1 Corinthians at times, and we talk about how we're all parts of the body, and we're eyes and hands and noses and knees, right? All, all kinds of, we're all parts of the body. But, but sometimes I feel like what we miss is our, our biggest goal is I, I gotta find out which part of the body I am, which, what's my part and what do I do. The, the point is when all the parts work together, when they all function as one, when they love each other and serve each other without division, then the world will know. This is what the fullness of God looks like. When there's disharmony, when there are non-functioning members, when there's a low level of buy-in, the body's broken and they don't see who he is. The apostle Paul, when he looks at the church, he says it is neither male nor female, it's neither Jew nor Greek, it is not uh, neither slave or, 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 or free, you are all one in Christ Jesus. Well, how do you get real unity? Most people will tell you, well, once you meet Jesus, the way you get unity is you start reading your Bible and you start praying and you go to church and you do 100 spiritual push-ups and you learn to walk worthy. And I'm saying those things are okay, those things are good. But to walk worthy, you gotta actually back up to verse two. It is a work of God's spirit in you for humility and meekness and patience and love. Well, why would you do that and how could you ever do that? It's because God has given you eyes to see a power within you from his spirit that is beyond what you think and a love that has been poured into you by his spirit that is beyond what you think. When God gives you eyes to see this, it really changes how, how you see everything. The part of my story that I told you earlier happened some 20 years ago, which was just a short time before God began doing some supernatural things that just made it evident to my wife, Jen, and I that God was directing us, he was directing our family toward what would be 
this, this church, Heart of Life. I knew he was doing that. I knew it. But here's the problem. The, the church was doing pretty good in the sense of it, it would be considered a growing church. Had even moved out of a little building, little bitty, you know, a typical brick red building into a bigger facility. I mean, those are the kind of things that just don't happen every day, especially in little towns. And there's only so many people in the town. You know what I mean? The population isn't that great. I mean, what if, like, what if I mess that up? <laughs> the problem is, the pa pastor prior to me um, was connector extraordinaire. He is. Still is. He's connector extraordinaire. In that, I mean, there are some people that I think God just gives this remarkable gift that every single person they meet on the planet thinks that they are the best friends they've ever met. You know, you ever met that person? Well, he, he, it's like he, he had that gift. You know what? I don't. I don't. Now, there are times I can fake it. You know, like when you butter people up to get what you want, right? But for me, honestly, that becomes manipulation really fast. I knew that I would be constantly compared. And it was like God was just kind of putting these things in front to, to actually be able to see before we walked into it. So you know what had to happen? Me and God had to have a little question and answer session. <laughs> and here's the question that he asked again. Is it possible? Is it possible for me to love you more than I do right now? Is it possible for me, God, to love you, Jeff, more than I love you right now? And I already knew the answer, right? This is just review, this is just review. God's like, okay, let's go through this again. The answer's no, his love is perfect. He already loves me to the fullest. So we said, okay. The very first sermon that I ever preached at Heart of Life was Ephesians chapter three. And we lived happily ever after, right? Nope. Sure enough, after a short period of time, I, I realized that honestly, the church was not all on the inside what it appeared to be on the outside. And I'm not slamming anything, I'm just saying it looked like I looked a short time before. I, I went to a leaders meeting early on, and in that leaders meeting, I watched this godly older man, at least I thought, and I watched him pin a young leader to the wall because this dude wasn't getting what he wanted, and I went, oh, oh. I watched people offended when they were not given full credit for what they had done. And I'm just telling you that in those first years, we went through 
some terribly difficult experiences. I am not exaggerating to you when I tell you that there was a point where I, I went to a meeting of the church and I was not sure that when the church, when it was over, whether or not I would be the pastor. And it wasn't because I was ready to quit. I'm bulldogging it. I'm hanging on. I'm still breathing. But I didn't even know if I'd have the choice. And I still remember the moment right before I walked into that meeting, and I still promise you I remember the peace, and it was almost like God and I had this little chuckle, this laugh. Here we go. And I'm admitting to you today that there are still some seasons when I struggle, and there are some still some seasons of loss, there are still seasons of betrayal, and sometimes it's my seasons of mistakes. But what I have come to realize is that God keeps asking the question. He keeps asking the question, Jeff, is it possible for me to love you more than I do right now? And 20 years later, 20 years later, I can tell you the answer has never changed. The answer is still no can't love you anymore because his love is perfect and he loves us to the fullest. I don't know. Maybe this is a season for some of you. Maybe it's time for a question worth asking. Is it possible for God to love you anymore? than he does right now. And when you know the answer, it might make you want to give up. But I'm telling you that if it makes you want to give up, it will be the greatest move. It will be the most powerful move. It will be the most life-giving move you ever make. So many of us believe we trust in God, but we really trust in God if he delivers success like the world measures success. We trust in God if my daughter is healed. We trust in God if I can grow my church. So you plug in, the, you plug in whatever that looks like for you. I can grow my business. I can do whatever. We trust in God and he will do this. And we negate all those parts of scripture where it is possible that sometimes God might lead us into something, sometimes God might call us to do something, that the end result is not going to be something that the whole world looks at and goes, well, look what God did. You, some of y'all still don't believe me. I'm saying, why would God call Jeremiah to preach a sermon? for 20 years and nobody, do you think God knew that before he called Jeremiah? Mm-hmm. But see, we don't think that's possible in our lives. We don't think God will ever call us to something and it not end up being blessed, multiplied, everybody's gonna look in and go, look at how good they did, we mean how good God did. And we just negate the fact that it could be possible that God walks us through some things in our life that he knows on the other end may not end up looking so blessed to the world, but the way, the way that you and I walk through it, the way that we handle struggle, 
the way that we handle defeat, the way that we handle what looks like failure with humility and meekness and patience and love and a oneness that decides I'm not going to drive a stake in the ground and just take care of me and not care about it. I'm going to continue to pour out my life. We just don't consider that God might do that with us. Yeah, he does. Yeah, he does. But I'm telling you, he is more. He is more than whatever you think the greatest achievement would be. He is more than whatever you think the greatest success could be that you do for him. He is more. I know. I know. Let's pray. God, I'm praying for some folks today, perhaps in some difficult seasons. God, maybe it's kids. Maybe it's kids with health, maybe it's kids with heart. And God, there may be some parents in the room who are just feeling the fight and they're feeling the struggle and it's feeling like defeat. God, that's their season. God, I pray for those who, God, maybe it's work-related, it's a pressure, it's expectations. God, for some, it's dreams that feel like they're failing or could fail. God, for some, it feels like they're delayed. God, we truly need power not to, not to do more. God, we need power to know you are more. God, for some of us, maybe the signs are there. For some of us, the, the technicals have been called in our life and we realize what's really stirring inside of us. We, we can feel the anger, we can... We can feel the fear, the disappointment, the frustration. God, today I'm asking that you would give us eyes to see. God, we need power. God, not to do something more, but to know that you are more. God, maybe some resignations need to happen today. Some parts of our life that we've been fighting for God, we keep trying to prop them up instead of actually trusting. God, that whether we succeed like the world defines success or whether we come out the other end of this and everybody else may think we failed, but we know, God, that we have been true to what you called us to. God, I'm asking you to help us to resign from control of all of that that maybe for some of us for the very first times in our life, we trust. God, for some of us, it hasn't been about the unity of the body. We've been in it for us. God, we need by the power of your spirit, humility and meekness and patience and love. God, we need eyes that can see we need the power to know that you 
or more. So God, as you're walking, as you're walking and working and talking across this room, God, to those who will hear my voice, God, I pray that you'd give us eyes to see and give us faith to trust. In the name of Jesus, I pray it.